Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb, and we have a very, a very top ten list today. It is kind of exciting. I was what you were going to use to uh, to fill that out. Yeah, it, like it's it's not really mediocre, but it's not super exciting either. And this is just overall a pretty interesting set because normally you, you have these three color sets and it's just like full of bangers, right? And this one doesn't necessarily deliver on that. No, I, I think it like it kind of fell short of my expectations, like what I thought it was going to be earlier on. If you were asking me to give this a number grade now, it would be a, a six out of 10 for this set, which is okay. Like you said, I, I think it's solid. I think it has some cards that, uh, you know, a, a couple at the top end that will definitely influence things dramatically across multiple formats. So that's good. As far as depth, this is less deep than sets we've seen recently. Certainly well behind Kamigawa in my eyes. And one other thing with this set, too, is that the theme of it didn't really hit for me in terms of like none of these card designs are evocative of this world in any way to me. I don't think any of this feels like the the gangster world. Like, sure, the pictures have like flappers on them and, you know, there's there's limousines and weird things we had never seen in Magic. But in terms of the mechanics lining up with that, this set's just kind of a miss for me, which is fine. Some sets are going to miss, some are going to hit. And also people just want to know what cards to play with. So those are here. We'll find good things to do with them. Yeah, like the world, as I saw more of the set, definitely got fleshed out and the the feel for it is there. I agree that's not really there on the mechanics, but it's like they obviously tried really hard with the art and the art style and the like art deco frames and stuff like that and the card names and some of the references for like how the cards operate, you know, just like sleeping with fishes and stuff like that. But it's it's not a thing that excites me, you know. It's like it's it's kind of like heavy handed, and then yeah, it it's sort of missing with the mechanics is also kind of weird. I mean, it's a challenging set to do magic mechanics on, right? I, I totally yeah, get of course, that, of course. And you do what you can with it, but I I think in terms of like the first foray into this kind of more modern space, I mean, Kal- Kaladesh to some extent did a little bit of this, but this feels much more like grounded in our reality than anything else magic has done up until this this point. I guess short of like Walking Dead secret layers. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, not quite getting there for me. But, you know, maybe good groundwork for the next time we try and do something along these lines. Yeah, it's it's weird, too, because it's like, what if what if this was like Magic's, you know, 30th expansion before a lot of the design space kind of got strip mined or whatever? Right. You know, it's like, w- would they have been able to make something a little more cohesive or whatever. And like, maybe my opinion is also just wrong, right? Where it's like, maybe a lot of other people appreciate the set more than I do or more than you or whatever. It's like, this is, this is not really my field of expertise, you know? So if other people like it, I, I, I don't really care. You know, that's, I am happy for them. I think most of the time that sort of stuff is just kind of going to miss for me incidentally anyway. So no, fair enough. I'm not the best person to ask. Yep, you, you kind of load up with this sort of flavory stuff for a certain group of players. And if that group of players is served by this, more power to them. I am happy for them. I want the text on the cards to be cool, and I want them to be fun to play with and fun to build around. Agreed. So uh, we will start our top 10 list by talking about some honorable mentions. Uh, first up is the Trilands, which I think are pretty obvious. You kind of need this in uh, a three-color set, although the mana was pretty good before and you saw folks stretching into three-color mana bases when when they wanted to, although a lot of the time that usually included still like playing a one-drop. You know, it's like you play Esper and maybe you still have like Shambling Gas Deadly Dispute in your deck or you play Teamer with Jasper Sentinel or something and now it's like, well, you have Triome which can give you like a different one-drop, which is kind of nice in some instances, but anytime you have to open on Triumph and you have like a Jasper Sentinel, it's going to feel pretty bad. Yeah, these are certainly more suited for slower decks, less curve out decks. I, I think these are big plants for post-rotation. Like these are going to be the foundation of mana bases because you're right, the mana was pretty good already. We were doing three color stuff very successfully and doing it in a way that wasn't like the typical three color build where things slow down quite a bit. There was there was very, very curve focused three color decks in this format. A lot of that empowered by the existing mana base. I, it feels like as we move to the next format, the three color decks are going to be less and less curve focused. And that'll probably be the 
uh, realm of, you know, the more traditional occupiers of that space, the the monocolor, two-color decks. Yeah. I think if, if you are going to play three colors and it's going to be more than just two colors with a light splash, then you're going to be happy that the Triumphs exist. I'm still mostly going to try and build mana bases, I think, with pathways and yep, same. whatever the reversed fast lands are. Because those mana bases are still rock solid. And then the more you dip into like, okay, I'm like solidly three color, the more you're probably going to need the Triumphs. Yep, agree entirely. And maybe you play like one of these to round out your mana base and some of the existing spots, or you just open up all new CMCs. We were very cautious with our CMCs before. A lot of one pip stuff making the mix, not a lot of two pip stuff. If you get to a spot where you want, you know, one two pip three drop versus another colors two color two pip three drop, then these are going to start paying big dividends. Yeah, I guess the other thing to potentially explore is the pathways made it pretty easy to just kind of incidentally play a, a fourth color, like yeah. a very, very light splash if you wanted to have like a lesson, for example, to get out of your sideboard or something. But now if you have like eight triumphs, you could potentially explore that too. I'm not sure whether there's anything that actually incentivizes me to want to try and play four colors, but it is there if you wanted to. Yeah, those those free splashes are always useful. The other one is big score, which is basically... Unexpected windfall, except with a colorless instead of a red. So it's strictly better. You know, it's it's way easier to cast. And that came up a lot in the Izzet decks and certainly the more recent ones that have like the white splash for show of confidence and some other stuff. It's like not needing to have double red or making it easier to like Galvanic, Galvanic iteration into this thing is a pretty big get. So you're going to see decks with four big score uh, before unexpected windfall. And then you're probably just going to see decks playing like six to eight copies of these two. I am shocked to see this reprint, uh, quote unquote reprint. I guess this means that people at Wizards kind of felt the same way as the broader community felt about Unexpected Windfall. Saw it as very much a niche player, something not to really pay attention to. I was excited about that card from the beginning. I, I remain excited about this effect. We've seen it reach back to multiple formats, I think correctly so. And this card sticking around post-rotation is... It's a big deal. Also, having eight of these right now probably enables some stuff. I think it's worth looking at, and I, I am very shocked to see this make the cut again. Yeah, I'm not unhappy, though, because when the top end isn't super scary, then it's well, completely that, fine. That's you know? the question, though, Jerry. I mean, like you, you have to commit to that idea of we don't make I know. seven mana sorcery win the game, of which there were several in the last format. So if we have learned that lesson, which, you know, debatable given like, Holebreaker Horror exists, although it has not had the impact I thought it would on this format. I will admit I probably overvalued it a little bit. But if the next Holebreaker Horror does have that kind of impact, then you have a problem on your hands making it of these. So. To be fair, a lot of Holebreaker Horror's impact was blunted with Divide by Zero getting banned. Yeah, which because, is weird because I thought that might unlock Holebreaker Horror in some ways. Yeah, but like it, it was just like the glue for the early to mid game. It was. Where it, it, just, was. It, it gave you an answer to a lot of stuff. It gave you an extra piece of cardboard to use with Holebreaker Horror. Right. And yeah, it, it turned out that like that card was very foundational, which they realized. And like that's that's why it was banned to just kind of like nerf those decks a little bit. And I think it did a really good job of doing that. It did. It, it was a smart ban, one that I didn't really uh, foresee having the kind of impact it did on some strategies like i i thought the whole breaker horror stuff would be just fine but you're right it was an important part of especially producing more cardboard i think that's a really good point whole breaker horror really leveraged the fact that you just never ran out of gas and like spots where you found a land and gained two life off of your lesson when that came with a bounce attached to it it just blew the game wide open in so many instances so yeah because playing those decks after divide was gone it was pretty easy to trade one for one a lot of the time. And then yep. you had like a lot of filtering, but not a lot of raw, just like, you know, give you more pieces of cardboard type of stuff. And divide by zero is so incidental, you know, because it was just like a fine card to play on its own. And then you just had the the lesson chilling in your hand that otherwise would not be there, basically. And then you get to untap with Hullbreaker Horror and you just have like four good options to gas or whatever. And without divide by zero, you you don't really have that. Uh, so I found myself like r just running out of gas with Hullbreaker Horror too. Good. I mean, good. No, I that's, that's the way I, it has to work. And, yeah. and Magic in general is a better game when you can run out of resources. Yeah, so I agree uh, with that. Yeah. Div divide by Zero was a smart ban. Anyway, 
those those things are all well and good. Maybe big score being in the mix changes things a little bit, but I also just would not be surprised if it meant that like the gold span dragon stuff is still even better to do than the whole breaker horror stuff. So yeah, you know, maybe it empowers is it just guy whatever a little bit more, but doesn't necessarily mean that Hallbreaker Horror is poised for a comeback or anything. I agree with that. I, I think it's a, a good get specifically for the Jeskai decks that can stand to clean up their mana a little bit. And beyond that, I probably doesn't change things immediately, but it does mean we do have this playstyle persisting post-rotation. So Brian sent me this top 10 list, and I went to just kind of like fact check it because I hadn't looked at what I thought my top 10 list would be. And normally there's some amount of disagreement and then we come to a consensus. And for this one, it was just like, well, you put like all the good cards on there and there's not that's that's good top 10 list making. And and there's not a lot left. So I didn't have much disagreement or anything. There were a lot of cards where I was like, well, like maybe this is top 10, but I was not confident in it. And basically it looks like this set has seven or eight like very strong kind of obvious cards and then a lot of filler past that. And I mean, obviously like the triumphs take up a lot of slots, but like, we're not going to put, you know, five dual lands in five of our top 10 slots or anything. Hence the honorable mentions. So past the, the cards that are just like really, really good. I think there's a lot of role players just chilling, maybe like 10, 15, maybe 20 of them in the set where it's like, you can add this to your deck if you're looking for this kind of effect or whatever, but it's not going to be widespread or anything. So I I like the list that you have. I'm not going to argue against it too much or anything. And then if your favorite card did not show up, it's probably just because it's, you know, maybe going to fit in one, one or two decks and like in small numbers. What was really interesting is that like, We've put together a lot of these top 10 lists by now, and I kind of have a process. And it's just, I start broad, you know, pull everything that has any potential at all in making my top 10 list. And then I just kind of start throwing some numbers around next to the cards and eventually come to some kind of thing that pleases my brain in a configuration uh, of these cards for a top 10. That's, and that's then, my deck building process. Yeah, that works too. <laughs> I, I don't object to that. But usually what happens is I put, like I said, 30 or so cards. In this case, I pulled 11 cards, so it was really easy to get down to 10. I don't think this is that weak of a set where like there's nothing good in it. It's just there's a lot of replacement level stuff and then a few things that stand out well above everything else. So it was kind of an easy process to put this together. Yeah, like I said, the, the top 10 cards are pretty good and I'm pretty happy with them. And this top 10 list is more impactful than some of the other sets that we've done where it's just like... You know, you get to like the top four and then you're like already in the filler, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Miles past like the D&D set for sure. And Yeah, exactly. So this this set is completely fine in my eyes. Maybe a little weak for uh, the eighth set in in standard. But yep. there's also like a lot of considerations too, where it's like things were kind of get, getting powered down. A lot of this does kind of seem like things that are meant to set up for the next standard format so like maybe you're going to see a lot of this stuff like post rotation when like standard is smaller a lot of the cards that look kind of weak now are probably going to be like all stars in in the next format yep agree with that all right number 10 uh kind of have two cards here because they do similar things uh first one is slip out the back you instant put a plus one plus one counter on target creature it phases out and then uh boon of safety which is a dub instant put a shield counter on target creature scry one and just one mana protection doesn't always find a home, but there are like sideboard la- applications for things like what's the the green plus one plus one in hexproof? Is it snakeskin veil? Snakeskin veil, yes. You're asking my slow brain to come up with things quickly, but I did get there eventually. Snakeskin veil. Yeah, it, like it popped into my head, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. I was thinking of like serpent skin from OG Kamigawa or something. No, you, you nailed it. Yeah, so like the, these cards are generally pretty solid, and there's there's two double strikers in this set too. There's show of confidence type stuff and yep. some setup for that that already existed. So it's like maybe this is enough to maybe help those things out. And then there's also just Goldspan Dragon, where uh, these cards tend to be fairly effective there as well. So a lot of the stuff on this list, it's like I don't know exactly where this is going to show up, but they are powerful enough to have an impact. 
Well, these two cards in particular, I think, are very interesting for this type of thing because they both allow you to persist through sweepers, which is usually the weakness of like your hexproof effect. It just gets blown out when a, your opponent plays a wrath. True. These are both getting through that. I think that's a big upgrade. Now, they come with some other downsides, like slip out the back is not going to allow you to continue your offense basically resets you and takes your creature out of combat. So if it's really important, your creature gets through. This fights against that. The shield counter doesn't protect you against exiling. So that's a weakness of, of the white card. But I, I think there's enough uniqueness in these cards that they're worth paying attention to. The, the phasing one in particular, you know, you mentioned like the double strike creatures. You go through all the effort of suiting this thing up and then you just get swept. This actually lets you suit something up phase it out and it comes back through the sweeper that's not something i remember really have access having access to in too many scenarios not, so that not for one mana. Me. Yeah. yeah not in a way that you would actually want to put it in your deck right and, and i think this one does pass that test so slip out the back seems more important of these two cards more unique of these two cards like i said has flaws but it intrigues me and i want to see what we can do with it yeah, Boon of Safety, I particularly like. I think that for the most part, the shield counter is going to be a little bit better than something like God's Willing. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned protecting from sweepers. I think that, that that is huge because that was like a, a big flaw in God's Willing. And yeah, there are minus X, minus X sort of things or things like Soul Shatter where maybe the, the shield counter yep. d- doesn't do anything if you're trying to protect Goldspan Dragon or whatever. But I think that this card at least on its face, seems like it has fewer fail cases than something like God's Willing, even though God's Willing could also get you through blockers or whatever. So yeah. I, I'm really interested in Boon. We, we also have other payoffs for shield counters, which we're about to talk about, but I, I think that is a another plus in favor of Boon. Yep. Number nine, Rego, Streetwise Mentor. Uh, this is one of the the weirdo three color cards. It's basically uh, it can be a mono white card if you want. So it's dub H H, where H is either green or white or white or blue. So you can cast it for triple white or like white white blue, white white green. Or if you're just banned, you can cast it too. Two uh, two legendary creature cat citizen. This enters the battlefield with a shield counter on it. Whenever you attack a player or planeswalker with one or more creatures with power one or less, draw a card. Immediate impact protects itself. Fits in many, many spaces, many configurations of decks. Body is kind of unimpressive, but that's not really what we're here for. I I just think this fills the role of that three drop, gets you some extra cardboard stuff that often rounds out mono white decks, uh, any kind of like small ball value deck. Plays very well with all these small creatures like Jaspera Sentinel going into this. It's tough on your mana for sure, but... I, I think there's, yeah, I think so. I mean, like if you're leading on green, then you have to get double white past that. It's not impossible if you're pulling or, from Jesper Sentinel or white blue, you know. Sure, white blue. Yeah, yeah so and, I, and Sentinel can cast it too. So, yeah, all all good stuff. I, I just think it's like it's not a huge impact card, but we've seen cards like this round out so many decks in so many scenarios. I think Rigo would do do the same. I don't think you play like four of this. I don't think it creates its own archetype it just rounds out a bunch of archetypes really well yeah mostly agree with that i think for mono white specifically there's a lot of competition at three mana correct and it it being like triple white would have mattered more in the faceless haven world and i know that a lot of the white decks in standard were playing like crawling barons and stuff and it's like eh, not super excited about that anyway uh i'm more excited about this in the jasper sentinel decks and i've played things like Briarbridge tracker before although yep. That had some other weirdo upsides where, like, you know, crude chariot and you could chariot copy the clues or whatever. But for the most part, this is pretty exciting to me. I, I agree with you. I think this is going to see spot play and, and be impressive in its role. Number eight, Obscura Charm. Esper mana, instant, choose one. Return target multicolored permanent card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Counter target instant or sorcery spell. Destroy target creature or planeswalker with mana value three or less. For me, I think this is all about the first mode, returning target non-land permanent with mana value three or less. It has really good Planeswalker targets. We have both Kaido, uh, Obnix list, which we're going to talk about. I think even going back to older formats, you can make a case for like returning Teferi being super strong. And obviously you need to get value out of the other modes in that scenario. But if this is like your card to kill Teferi and your Esper control deck. That's a very important thing to do. So fills that role. 
it depends a lot on what creatures this is going to hit. And I would say right now it's it's not going super wide in the number of creatures it's going to hit, but that could change over time. And I think answering these three mana planeswalkers is going to be a very big deal in the format going forward. So Obscure Charm got my pick as favorite charm. Also, you know, we talked a little bit about the big sorceries that have just won the game over the past few years, be it Ultimatum or Alan's Epiphany. If one of those pops up again, Obscure Charm will be ready to be very versatile in its approach to answering it. So I always like to see that. Yeah, I like the counter aspect on it. Think that the return mode is pretty solid, but you have to be very cognizant of it when you're deck building and it's like For sure. only multicolored stuff. So that's kind of limiting. And then it, it doesn't kill enough of the things that matter in the format, to be honest. And it's like, that's kind of what you need your charm to do is like be a removal spell first in a lot of instances. And then whatever value you get from it, from the different modes is just kind of like upside. And this doesn't really do it for me. Uh, there's also Voidrend, which is like the instant speed Vindicate non-land, which I feel like is mostly going to take the spot of this in a lot of spots. So uh, if it were up to me, I would have a different charm on the list, this list. I would probably have the Jun charm, but I, I definitely see where you're coming from. You know, like a lot of the charms are pretty solid and could very easily take spots in the top 10. Yeah, it's going to depend a lot on what the format is about. And, and to me, I just see the a huge, huge power spike in these three mana planeswalkers. Now, granted, one of the three mana planeswalkers splits in two. So yeah. maybe Obscure Charm, not the best answer in that scenario. So, yeah, I was I was going to push back on that because I think that ob, ob splitting in two means that spot removal is not very good against it. And it probably yeah. means that a lot of these decks are just going to have to be a little bit more proactive in general and just have the capacity to attack it down. But like Obscure Charm also incentivizes you to build your deck in such a way where you have that capacity anyway, because like you're going to need to play, you know, multicolor permanent. permanents to bring back anyway. Yep. So I think that Obscure Charm might not necessarily be a good answer to Obnick's list, but it might also incentivize you to build your deck in such a way where your deck is like solid against it. So maybe it's not that bad. That's interesting. Yeah, I you know, I, I wouldn't push back if you had come back saying, no, this charm has to be there instead. I, I think they're pretty close. This is the one that, given the PowerPoints existing in the format, is the one that I could see carrying forward most easily. And also, like, like I said, a catch-all against instant sorcery is a really, really good spot where those things often get out of line. There's nothing right now where I'm like, oh, this is going to answer that card perfect. We We needed that. But I think that is the most likely class of cards where you're like, I need to be able to counter this. Otherwise, I'm not even playing the game. Right. So, for example, the the Jun Charm has like the weirdo mode where it's just exile uh, player's graveyard. And it's like that that is fine. That is definitely going to come up. And you're going to be happy that you have this main deckable way to interact with this thing that is kind of hard to interact with. But it's going to be few and far between. And I think yes. the, the negate mode sort of on this is going to be super relevant. Like, I think the modes that you use on this are going to be pretty evenly split, honestly. Yeah, maybe that's what part of the appeal is for me, is just seeing how well I can split the modes. And when I'm doing like the, you know, pre-play evaluation of these things, that's what's going to stand out to me is, oh, all of these modes actually uh, will come up equally as often. Yeah, there's just so many good like four and five mana cards, man. And this this card, unless they're instants and sorceries, does not touch them. So I'm a little wary. On to number seven. We finished our show last week, and then I th I think like immediately after this card was previewed, and it was like, damn it. Uh, yes, yeah, so seconds after we wrapped recording, this showed up. Yeah, uh, Tenacious Underdog, 1B, 3-2, Creature Human Warrior, Blitz, 2BB, Pay 2 Life. You may cast this from your graveyard using its Blitz ability, and I don't think we've talked about Blitz much, so I'm just going to go over the reminder text, too. Yeah, good idea. If you cast this for its Blitz cost, it gains haste, and when this creature dies, draw a card, sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So, two mana, three, two, ETB's untapped, you can block with it, and then once you trade it away or it dies, you just get to start blitzing it, and it like, doesn't get exiled or anything. So, this is just like a, a very recursive very strong threat against control decks for sure but even in the the black mid-range matchups like it can come down to something like this having some way to consistently like use your mana you get to uh draw a card when this thing dies this gives you like repeated sacrifice fodder albeit like a little bit expensive but there's a lot to like about this card 
Totally agree. I think it covers a lot of bases. And also, I'm sure there's like certain patterns that have emerged. If you have listened to us do enough of these top 10 lists, you know, I'm a sucker for three, two for two mana. Like that stat line just gets me every single time because there's so much upside in it. Like any deck that isn't trying to interact with you early, you play this three, two on turn two, and you're pushing a lot of damage very quickly. Particularly, I I like that you mentioned like control decks when they're not pressuring your life total and you can afford to get this back six times in a game and, you know, threaten 18 damage from it and six cards in hand, that's going to be really, really absurd output. And I, the games won't often play out like that, but if they have to, you have that option. And I, I think this is going to be really problematic for some decks to deal with. It'll incentivize exile and removal. And the fact that the 3-2 is just a clean 3-2, no restrictions on its blocking, anything like that, I think it's just good on its face. And we'll see play for that value as well. So... I'm into this card. I don't think it's a world beater, but very, very solid glue. That's very generous across all of its modes. Yeah, it's also human, which may or may not matter for standard. But if you go back to like, you know, pioneer type of stuff, like there's there's mono black aggro, which would probably want to play at least a copy of this, maybe a second one. And I think so. There are a couple different like weirdo human decks. I think this for historic could be reasonable. So like it could potentially go back to older formats, too. Yeah, General Kudro's around, often pumping up the human tribe, so black-white humans isn't out of the question. And I think in that spot, this is quite a good tool for them. Like, they appreciate having something that generates a little value from the graveyard. Number six, Fleetfoot Dancer, one and Naya Colors, a four-mana total, four-four, creature, elf druid, trample, lifelink, haste. This, This at Siege Rhino, I think, is how most people are looking at it, which is... Not exactly like an apt comparison, but I get it, you know. A lot of abilities on this card, they all combine very, very well to influence a specific type of game. Now, I don't think we're mostly playing those games right now. It's it's more mid-rangey, more grindy. But in a world where those games become important again, which may or may not happen, I think Fleet Foot Dancer is one of the best threats you could possibly have. And just the combination of like trample and lifelink, there's there's no way around that, right? And the thing is like against a lifelinking threat like this, if you were playing something like mono red, you could manipulate things a little bit. You know, you could sacrifice your creatures and prevent them from gaining the life and get things to extend a little bit and then find a way to play around these type of things. The existence of Flea Foot Dancer does a lot to completely stop that mode of playing games from being valid unless you can answer it. And Sure, decks can, but they'll have to be built in that fashion. So anything that's shaping the discourse about how to build your aggressive deck is really, really important to keep track of. And I think Fleet Foot Dancer does have that broad of an impact. Trample Haste is just good against Planeswalkers, too. And that is very true. Yeah, it, it influences a lot of other cards. A lot of the Planeswalkers are, are like decks built around Planeswalkers that we see now are very much about jumping with like shambling ghast or spirited companion, things like that, random tokens to to protect their things. And like this thing does hit pretty hard. Haste is awesome. So I like that aspect about it too. And having like chariot into Goldspan Dragon is definitely good, but like this into Goldspan Dragon having more haste threats is also very powerful too. So uh I, I do like this card. I'm excited to like you know, build around it, play with it. I'm definitely a mid-range guy at, at this point. I don't know how or why, but I just am. One thing I'll say is that the, the probably, at least for now, best planeswalker in standard is Wandering Emperor. Plays into this pretty well. It doesn't have the same vulnerabilities as most planeswalkers would. So that's worth noting. But there, there's other very good planeswalkers, including in this set. And challenging that card type is always good, especially in Naya colors, which is a, a color that can sometimes struggle with planeswalkers. Yeah. Uh, I will say though that like once you go through the turn where they actually have to cast the wandering emperor and like, yeah, it's usually going to be pretty bad for you. Mm -hmm. This does a pretty good job at pressuring it on the follow-up. It does. So that is reasonable. It's, it's not like completely terrible against it. Yep. Uh, Or if you just like play it and pass, right? Like what are they going to do? Like not play their emperor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I I love things that inspire audit play patterns like that like force you to make a decision soul read your hand and just completely ruin the flow of gameplay that you had expected to happen number five depopulate two dub dub sorcery each player who controls a multicolored creature draws a card then destroy all creatures shatter the sky was the one with the four power stuff and it's like 
correct? Yeah, your your opponent draws a card a decent amount of the time, and I think the multicolored creature it, it's it's going to go up after this set, obviously. But there are definitely going to be times where your opponent doesn't draw a card, or where maybe you have the multicolored creature and you draw a card. Uh, so maybe you're on parity, or maybe you're even up a card or whatever. But either way, having uh, access to a four mana sweeper, regardless of the downsides, is going to be a good thing. Although, you know, there's boon of safety or just shield counters on things in general that make mm-hmm. this sort of thing a little bit worse. But regardless, four mana sweeper, definitely good, definitely going to have an impact. Yeah, you're right that there are some ways to now answer sweepers from your attacking decks, which I, I think is good. I like to see this card type challenge. But in terms of evaluating this card, we, we just did this already with Shatter the Sky. And there was a lot of debate over whether that would be good. It was. It mattered a ton. You gave your opponent cards a lot. You didn't care. You had more cards than they did. Uh, sometimes, you know, you drew a card as well. I think this is more likely to draw you a card than Shatter the Sky was. Because in general, if you're playing a sweeper deck, you're not always loading up with a bunch of four power creatures. So that's cool. I, I, I hope there's a way to sort of make that a little bit more imbalanced where you're often the one benefiting from this instead of your opponent or you're both benefiting from it. I think that's fine as well. But four mana sweepers just change the pace of the game. They always, always, always will matter. This is a solid one. Sweepers used to be more about picking up like a two for one, three for one, and eventually grinding your opponent out. Now it's more so just about tempo. And agreed. Like giving your opponent a card is bad, right? But being able to do this on the cheap definitely matters a lot. And for the most part, you are generally building towards something bigger than your opponent. So it doesn't really matter all that much. Yeah. When when your late plays just take over the game, give them a card. Who cares? As, as long as they're not killing you, if you get to the point where you play your Holebreaker Horror or whatever analog there is for Holebreaker Horror that just closes things up. You know, it was, it was Dream Trawler previously when we had Shattered the Sky. Give your opponent a card. They're not going to beat your Dream Trawler anyway. Who cares? And that's kind of the same scenario I see happening with Depopulate. Just need some time. Number four, Endless Detour. Bant mana, three mana total. Instant, the owner of target spell, non-land permanent, or card in a graveyard puts it on the top or bottom of their library. I, I would probably have this card higher, and regardless of playability or power level, this is one of my favorite cards in the set, I think. Agree. Anything that inspires odd play patterns, like I said, will always get me excited. This card, I mean, we could sit here and talk about the use cases for it, but that could be a whole podcast. It does everything. It does absolutely everything. It targets uncounterable creatures. It uh, functions as a removal spell. It buys you back your best spell when you need it late. You know, it prevents your opponent from reanimating something. You can just go up and down the list of these modes. There's so many creative plays you can make with it, and they're all like on par for the mana cost of this card. So I think this is just a slam dunk. I'm excited to play with this card. It combines well with like Leer potentially as another quasi divide by zero. Like you don't get the cardboard attached to it, which is a big deal for sure. But there's something to be said about being able to still counter things when you have a leer out and just getting these very stocked graveyards that allow you to pull ahead eventually. So I want to explore that a little bit. I also just want to play it as a good card. I think it does so many things. It sort of fills the niche of Divide by Zero alongside Lear also. Yep. And like our, our buddy Liam posted a list on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that, but Liam's list looked really good to me. I, I did not see it, but I'll have to take a look at it because it's definitely a space I'm interested in exploring. Yeah, you, you already like Lear. You like this card. They, they work well together. Let's go. Yep. Number three, Unlucky Witness. Nothing nothing about this card seems un- unlucky to me. Uh, R- no, very lucky witness. R11, creature human citizen. When this dies, exile the top two cards of your library until your next end step. You may play one of those cards. We're both suckers for cards like this. Give us a one drop with some value tied onto it, and we're often very excited. I think this is among the best of those type of cards. Looking at your top two, getting to choose, being able to play lands is really impactful. Just being an an easy one drop. I, I think this does so many things for so many decks. Combines beautifully with Deadly Dispute. Obviously, it's often going to pay for the thing you're trying to get to. There's a Big emphasis on Sacrificial Fodder in this set. We didn't talk a lot about Casualty thus far in our review. And interesting that the mechanics of this set kind of aren't all over this top 10. They're really not what's important here yet. 
we're getting there. But regardless, there are good casualty cards in this set. A lot of them are replacement level, but you have fodder like this to put into them. They're going to get a lot better than replacement level very quickly. Yeah, this card is nice. The The downside is that, uh, I mean, to some extent, it's red, which isn't necessarily the color that is like super hyped to have this. Like obviously Rakdosak exists, so mm-hmm. it's going to fit in there. But Shambling Gas, you know, also propped up like Orzov decks, for example, right? And this is going to be a little bit narrow in scope because of that. But it is just like the best version of this effect. And yeah, it working with Deadly Dispute, you getting to choose, it being a thing that's like, your next end steps, you can deadly dispute on their turn on tap and like be able to cast whatever card you want off it. It gives you a choice, which is like so generous, I think, compared to what we normally see where, you know, it could just yeah. exile the top one. And I think that we'd be like reasonably happy with it. But yeah, it's it's basically just like if you have a way to utilize this, you're probably not going to miss. And that is going to be so much more impactful than getting a treasure or like minus one, minus one something, even though Shambling Gas is very, very good. Agree. And I, I think it is good that this card isn't black because a lot of the sacrifice space would just congeal around it. Yeah. It's it's better that we have to stretch a little bit and are locked into only one way of doing the sacrifice stuff. I don't think this has like just value as a red card. I, I think you do have to build around it specifically, but it's so good in that role that I'm willing to put it this high on the list. Yeah, I'm curious if it shows up in mono red aggro. Like we, it's we interesting. don't have, we don't have the most aggressive one drops right now yeah you have like simian sling there's like a menace for striker treasure one drop in this set yeah a lot of one power stuff so it's all pretty mopey and i don't know just the idea of like maybe getting this thing into combat and like forcing them to trade with it is like also solid enough but i don't think that we're there yeah it'd have to be a scenario where you're just like turning your fodder into something like even ember cleave i could sort of buy that you just don't care you're just trying to get a one drop on the battlefield and turning it into another one drop would be beneficial for you. That makes sense to me. You know, scenarios where you have some kind of Anthem effect, I could see this being the important play, but I I don't think anything in red screams play this card to me at the moment. There are theoretical red decks that would go down that road. Yeah. Like Cavalcade. Sure. Cavalcade is another good example. Number two, Tainted Indulgence. You be instant, draw two cards, then discard a card unless there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. If Endless Detour is not my favorite card in the set, this certainly is. I am not going to make the mistake of leaving the two mana draw spell off of our top ten list again. It's way too good, way too impactful, stretches to multiple formats, fits in multiple strategies. I Look at the five different cost thing as like reminder text if it happens great probably won't the vast majority of the time card's still good it really doesn't matter and the fact that it will occasionally happen is tremendous upside especially with like the control decks that will often play this make no effort to make the five different converted mana costs happen and just get there when we get to the late game and this just turning into a raw instant speed draw two is going to be really sick in those spots it's funny that the Simpler cards in this set are the ones that floated up our list. Maybe we just got sick of reading the real wordy ones. But I mean, like, it says something about just the simplest, straightforward things can often be the best. And this is simply put two new cards in your hand. What more do you need to know about it? Yeah. I I mean, there are also graveyard considerations if you want to do stuff like that. If you want to talk about uh, modern sort of things, like obviously your CMCs are kind of hyper-focus and like maybe you're delving too. So it's a little bit more unlikely that you get to five different mana values or whatever, but this is blue and black. It pitches to, you know, force or grief or whatever, if you want to like build around those sort of things. Sure. Yeah. For Pioneer specifically, there was a period where the Inverter of Truth deck like really wanted something like this. Like you just needed a way to filter so like yep. having having this as uh kind of like combo setup card too is pretty nice or combo control. So uh I like this card. Uh a lot of my decks are gonna start with this, and maybe this is a thing that gets me to work on like actual control too. I could totally see that. It doesn't take much to push me in that direction. You know, you know I want to do that anyway, but this is as good a reason as anything, be it Esper control or you know, just straight demir control. I think 
just having glue is so critical to those archetypes. You need to consistently execute the things you're trying to do on the turns you need to do them. And if this is like how you make sure you always have your sweeper on turn four and how you play catch up against aggro decks, that, that's a really important role for this card to fill. Uh, I'm excited to see what these decks look like when they have access to a card like this. Yeah, just have ways to use your mana. Yep. Like you want to be able to use your mana every single turn, and this just fills all the gaps. That and scaling throughout the game is also so important. Like yeah. you need your you need your early cards to also matter late, and this absolutely will. Yep. And and for standard, it's going to be comically easy if you find that it's a little bit tougher than you thought it would. It's like, well, you can play a Seagate Restoration or whatever to diversify your mana cost if you want to. Sure, which we will often do anyway. So really, no cost there. Uh, number one card in the set. Obnixilis the Adversary, 1BR, Legendary Planeswalker, Nixilis, 3 starting loyalty, Casualty X. As you cast the spell, you may sacrifice a creature with power X. When you do, copy the spell, and you may choose new targets for the copy. And then for Obnixilis specifically, the copy isn't legendary and has starting loyalty X. So you can sack a 1-drop to make another Ob with starting loyalty 1, or you could sack or sack a 1-power thing, not necessarily a 1-drop, but... uh. You could sack a seven power thing to make one where you could just like immediately ultimate this thing. So a lot of scalability. Uh, plus one, each opponent loses two life unless they discard a card. If you control a demon or devil, you gain two life. Minus two, create a one one red devil creature token with when this creature dies, it deals one to any target. And minus seven, target player draws seven cards and loses seven life. Go. Sorry, I went and uh, made a sandwich while you were reading through that card because this is this is the clear exception to we like the cards that are simple and don't have a lot of words a lot this of card, words on them <laughs> this has a lot of words and it makes you copies of it i mean yep. i i guess it's like you know once you know what the first one does it's fine but it's also like the amount of variability for things that could happen does scale when you start having a second copy of this it absolutely does and it's really hard to evaluate ob uh, Short of it's really good. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't think anyone's disputing that. Is it like format defining good? Is it format warping? Is it problematically good? All of those things seem possible to me. And I can't really answer them right now because we've never had a planeswalker that generates two planeswalkers immediately before. Like there there was a version of Jace that could do this trick kind of. It wasn't very good. But this seems so much better than that. It, It pressures so so well it it makes these devils which we have seen before are problematic little creatures like they do so much more than you expect them to uh they give you battlefield presence they control opposing aggression they pick off other threats so that will matter a bunch and ultimate that comes pretty quickly in the default but you can also cheat too if you have some things that are you know above rate in terms of power it's very easy to get good stuff from Ob. We already talked about Tenacious Underdog. I think that's going to make a lot of two instances of three loyalty Ob to start. And then, you know, maybe one starts plusing, one starts minusing. In that scenario, you have a larger Planeswalker. You have something to protect that Planeswalker. And you have two Planeswalkers split in half in that spot. That's asking so, so much of so many opponents. Like, I think decks are going to have to... Be very conscious of Ob in the way they build. Otherwise, they're just going to get run over by the value that two Ob's are going to create over the course of the game. It's so funny to me that Set is like, all right, here's, you know, these clunky three-color cards, some triumphs to cast them, and then there's also this card where you play it like turn three on, on the play and your opponent is so far behind. Yeah. So there are definitely weird incentives going on here with this card. I Obviously, I would expect this card to have been tested a lot. You hope so. I am near certain it was. Usually, like, if I'm concerned about this stuff, it's when changes happen late. I think given what happened with Oko, they have learned their lesson in that regards, especially when it comes to a three-mana... I mean, I hope. There's no way you just make a three-mana Planeswalker and change it at the last second and leave yourself vulnerable to a completely warping the format again, right? Like, that's the mistake you make one time, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, plus there was some stuff on Twitter about how uh, Jules Robbins fought very hard to have like casualty X on this card and they figured out a way to make it happen. And that, that to me means that there was probably like a lot of care in put into this card to, you know, even to to just make sure that like that, that sort of thing was okay. Right. Yeah. But also for like power level and to make sure that it wasn't super overwhelming and oppressive and 
really force you to build your decks in a certain way or whatever, but but it sure looks like it does, right? It like does. I'm just reading it and I'm like, how do you answer this in so many scenarios? And I I don't know. You need to have battlefield presence. It needs to be battlefield presence that can like play through these red devils and not just get blown out by them. And it needs to be kind of wide. So the second ob isn't problematic for you. And I, I don't know. It, it's very strange to me. I, I, I guess we can end up with a scenario too where we get three ops. Is that right? Like that that's possible is if the, the first one dies, like the cardboard copy dies and you play second yeah, ob. You, you want to attack the copy for sure. Right. Right. Otherwise you could face three ops. Yeah. So say, say you play a one or a two drop, not even saying that you curve one into two, but I, either you play like a shambling ghast or tenacious homie or whatever. And then you, you ob and casualty. Let's say you go, Shamble and gas into miss your two drop into ob, right? Mm-hmm. So you casualty one. So you have normal ob on three, copy ob on one. You can tick up the copy. Yeah. Or well, minus. Minus first. Minus yeah. on, on the OG and then tick up. So then you have an ob on one and two. And then your opponent's like losing two and you're gaining two, presumably, right? And then you have like a devil to block. Like that is already still a pretty good scenario. And then you. You know, if it was a shambling guess that you sack, like, okay, you have a, a treasure two, or maybe you killed something. But if you curve like one into two, you either have like another thing attacking your opponent already, or you have an extra blocker back if you need that. Uh, if you want to sack the two drop to get a little bit of extra loyalty on the other one, you can do that. And yeah, assuming you're on the play, I mean, that that's like a pretty good setup. It seems pretty difficult to remove even like one of the obs immediately, right? And when you're on the draw, it gets- and then they're just plusing over time too. Like they're they're continually getting bigger. And if things aren't being interjected with, it's a four point. Well, it's an eight point life swing happening at the same time. It's plus four minus four. Yeah. So I, I mean, the life that you gain, it, it's definitely not inconsequential, but it also doesn't do anything to impact what matters immediately, which is like whether or not your opponents can remove the ops. Like maybe they go through a bunch of work, they finally get rid of your ops, whatever. And now you're at 30 life and it makes things even harder for them. Like, I guess yeah. that, that is definitely good, but I, I wouldn't necessarily count on like that being a big deal. So like, yeah, people were talking about like, Oh, you know, you make a devil and then you get to start gaining life. And it's like, well, I don't know, depending on the situation, I might just like double plus and just be like, yeah, whatever. I'm just going to sure go after your life total as quickly as possible. And I don't know, maybe if I, I get you to a point where you're like, oh, I can't keep taking two, then they have to start discarding cards. And obviously that's great. But uh, I will say that thinking about how this is going to play out and especially with Tenacious Underdog, that's a way to pressure your opponent's life total. And the Blitz ability certainly helps in that regard too. It makes like the lose two from Ob a lot more appealing when you have like more ways to go after their life total. So like sure. the Anvil matters uh, in that regard too. Then it's just like, well, then you, maybe you just want ways to like gain life to offset this. And then Fleetfoot Dancer start look, looking like a lot more appealing, right? Because you have like trample and haste to get over the random 1-1 one, one blockers. And you have yep. a lifelink to like pad your life total and make it so you don't have to start discarding cards. So maybe ob just existing means that Fleetfoot Dancer is a little bit better. Sure. I, I buy that. And I, I think Ob's the type of card, like we said, should shape opposing decisions around it. It's funny that like... You're incentivized to pressure the token for the reason we mentioned making three obs would be very bad. But also in some scenarios, the token is going to be the larger of the two obs. Like yeah. if you're ever sacrificing anything with value. So it's it's the harder one. I mean, it can be the harder one to go after. You know, with Planeswalkers, a lot of the times I am probably more hesitant than most people to play four copies. Obviously, there's exceptions to that where the card is just like clearly the best thing to be doing. But I, I find a lot of people play... Uh, like more value oriented planeswalkers at four copies where I am more inclined to just like play two or three and try and hold them for the right moment. And, you know, not always just jam the max with ob. I am, I am jamming four of these I, things every single time. You just want it on turn three, every game. Yeah. It, it's without question. And it plays so well into the late game. It scales into the late game. Again, there's the thing with like three obs, which will be, silly and depressive and yeah the more i talk about this card the more i am very sure it's the number one card in the set i'm I'm not disputing that 
it's the type of card that has the potential to be the number one card in standard, which is going very far. It's kind of funny, too, because Rectosec was already solid. Yeah. And this gives them like a, a ton of power and an engine and another way to potentially burn your opponent out because like we had Meat Hook and it was like, oh, I kind of want a second thing. And then we got Sanguine Brushstroke for Alchemy and then we got Anvil for Standard. And it was like, yeah, having, you know, like seven or eight of these effects definitely feels good. And now you just have like 12. You're just like yeah. flooded in them. Yep. They were all about synergy and getting these very small uh, sources of card advantage or, you know, dinging your opponent out or whatever. And now it's just like, well, now I just have like this raw power too. Uh, so that deck definitely looks very good. Agreed. Certainly among the first things I'll be playing, assuming I can acquire OBS. Uh, obviously, they will be hard to come by on Magic Online in the early days, but that is now where I do my gaming. So I will deal with it. And at some point I'll get OB into my deck. Let me know when you play. I'm down to just like chill on Discord if you want to. That sounds exciting. Uh, maybe maybe you'll want to do some streaming and we can we can battle some standard on stream. That would be cool too. Yeah, I mean, okay. So since since you brought it up, I guess I'm going to talk about it. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I I put up a schedule because I was like, I'm, I want to force myself to do this, right? Yeah. How, how'd that go? I, I lasted for about a week. Okay. And then, to be fair, there was... I'm proud of you for doing that week, though. I know that sounds facetious, but it's, it's not. I am. That's, that's, that's a good start. And I, I know you're serious because I know that you're understanding. And yes. I do I do appreciate it. And I tried really hard. And to be fair, this one wasn't like, oh, I don't really feel like doing it. It was like, you know, we had some scheduling weirdness with the podcast, which may persist. Because like now, like we were recording on Thursdays. Now you're kind of doing stuff on Thursdays. So we might go back to recording on Wednesdays. Yep. which was the day that uh, I was going to stream. And that, I, I think it is just like once you miss the first day, it's like so much easier to to skip the next one, you know? That's why we don't skip many podcasts around here. Because I, I know. If, if we started doing that, it would be a slippery slope. And I mean, that happened with our articles, right? It was like, God, I right. really don't feel like writing this week because like mental health is not good or like, you know, magic sucks or whatever. And then it was just like, well, I'll skip the next week too. And that, that was obviously a slippery slope and was pretty bad. But I think if we, if we swap to recording on Wednesdays and then my stream day becomes Thursday, that becomes a little bit easier. But then after that, there was some stuff happening on Saturday. I think I like had an opportunity to hang out with people around here and I just took it because I don't get many of those opportunities. And then Monday rolled around. And I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm tired. You know, like that, that was okay. Finally, like this is a day where I just like can't do it or whatever. Uh, See, but I, I, this is the thing about streaming for you and I though, is that we're just like such flexible, non-scheduled people that getting on that schedule is so, so hard. It is. And it, it kind of like, there were definitely times where I was like, oh, I kind of feel like streaming right now. But like the problem is that that generally happens at like 3 a.m. where I, right. where I finally get like my burst of energy for the day or whatever. And it's like, I could just fire it up and stream to like 20 people, you know, and maybe I should just be doing that if I feel like it. But look, you have you have friends and fans all over the world. If if that's what works for you, I think that's what you have to do, at, at least to begin with. Like if you if you really do want to stream, if it's something that's important to you, it's something that makes you happy. Uh, Nick Prince said something to me that was very wise when I was dabbling and streaming some TFT. He's like, just if you're going to play TFT, just hit play. Don't worry about when you're doing it. Don't worry about how long you're going to do it. Don't worry about the timing. Don't worry about who shows up. Just get yourself comfortable with like hitting play. When you go to play your games, you hit play. That's all there is to it. No decision, no discussion. And that really helped in terms of just like doing it for a little while. And yeah. then I decided I want to do other things, but still it was very good advice. And I, I think I would extend the same advice to you is just like, do well, what works for you. Like the, you, you have to be flexible. The problem is that I'm not spending my time necessarily playing magic. Right. So it's not like, oh, I'm I'd be playing magic anyway. I might as well hit play because if that ever came up, I probably would just do it. It would be fine. Well, so uh, so then is streaming the right thing for you? Like this is this this is the thing I keep coming back to is that if you're forcing yourself to do something you wouldn't otherwise be doing, I'm not sure that's a good approach. Like I think it has to be something that's just like well, bringing you joy and like the thing you want to do. So we lived pretty privileged lives for a while in regards to magic content where we got to do stuff that 
did just check all the boxes and we got to work in ways that were were good for us and made sense. And like, granted, I spent 15 years getting to a spot where that was what it was, right? right? Like if, if things were difficult, I I would do them occasionally, you know, but it wasn't a thing that I constantly had to like force myself to do, which is how I felt when I would be working like a nine to five in a lot of cases. Right. I, I will say that like, you know, when I was doing wizards work or whatever, it didn't necessarily feel like that. Like there were definitely days where it was, you know, bad for a few reasons or where like the overarching sense that I got was like that this is not going well or whatever, but it was also nice to have a scheduled thing that I had to go to. Mm. So like I can do a nine to five, but it's, it, it's not a thing that like makes me happy, but like your job isn't necessarily always supposed to make you happy. Right. Like I think if you are, are in that spot, you're so goddamn lucky. And I, I was definitely there and now I'm not. And now I need to, like, obviously, if there are things that I can get to where this feels good and I can do it and be happy and still get paid doing it, I should absolutely move towards that thing. And streaming is not that thing. But, like, it's not like a, another good thing exists that I'm just not doing. I know. Uh, you know, you talk about a privileged approach. Mine is the same as yours, except I didn't have to do that 15 years of work. I just, like, waltzed in and got to do exactly what I wanted. So nobody has has more privilege and more like survivorship bias baked into their takes sure. than I do. Like I, it, it just is what it is. I don't and know, man. It's, it's weird the spot that you ended up in, but at the same time, it's like you demonstrated to me constantly that you were like knowledgeable and a good person and a hard worker. And I don't know, like I, I was in a position to give you an opportunity. And I think that you – I think that like deserve and earned or like kind of silly or whatever, but like, you know, you, I think you, you did earn it at least compared to your contemporaries, you know? Yeah. I, I appreciate that. And I, I get what you're saying, but there's also like this whole overarching theme with how I approach my life, which is just like, I'm only doing the shit that makes me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, f- fuck it, I'll do something else. Yeah. And it has worked out extraordinarily well for me. And I'm extremely, extremely lucky that it has. And so I often want to push other people to do that because like, I know that the happiness it's brought me and how well it's worked out. But also I, you know, I can't deny the fact that I got extremely lucky and it, it doesn't always work that way. So, you know, when you're making decisions based on just like, this is how it has to be. So I can continue pursuing this line of work and pay my bills. I, I sort of ignore that sometimes. So I apologize for that. I should be better about like no, dude, accepting I, the reality of I, it. I think that you're right in that regard. The problem that I face now is that there isn't a thing for me to do otherwise. Yeah. And so like right now, I, you know, I, I have some money saved, right? And I am not making enough to really like cover my bills, but like I'm not, I'm not destitute currently, but I do need to start doing other things to make money to, to ensure that I'm not destitute at some point. Right. And streaming seemed like a way to do that because it's a thing that I've I've done before. I think that I'm good at it. It's just like really hard to do. And the, the reason I brought it up is that like, I have a psych appointment later today and we'll get medicated uh, for ADHD, which I think will awesome. will help. I, I mean like fingers crossed that it like all works out because I've, I've told you some stuff from just like, ah, maybe this is not going to work out. Right. But like, I think it will, I think it will. I think so. And if, if I am medicated, I will have more energy. I will be able to hit play. And obviously like there was like, you know, some life stuff too, where, uh, I was just wiped out and basically still am, you know, like I'm not back to hundred percent by any means, but like, I feel a, a little bit better, but it was definitely a setback in, uh, Long string of setbacks, I'll say. It, it is. Yeah. It has been hard to be able to do it consistently. If there were better opportunities, I mean, like by all means, let me know. But like, I, I've searched a little bit. I haven't found anything, and I'm just like, well, I need to do something to make money in the meantime. And I think that this is a decent way to do it. And it's not like I, I hate it. Like I end the stream, and I I feel reasonable in most most cases. But <laughs> most cases. Most cases. But yeah, getting getting started doing it consistently, like those things are hard and those are things that I need to do. And getting medicated is a step towards that. And I hope that it makes it easier and makes it so I will be able to do it. But we'll see. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Uh, and in my experience, it 
it often does. So that's that's a good first step. A hard first step to take sometimes, but one that could definitely pay dividends. I guess like there's also like a smaller scale on which you can apply my advice, which is like do the thing, do the streaming, play the magic, but always make sure you're doing the version of magic you want to do. I am. And I am. That, that's that's a good starting point to make sure you're having fun doing it. And I, I have seen you doing that thus far, you know, playing the decks that interest you and not just grinding ladder and trying to reach number one mythic, which, man, that would burn you out in about two days, I think. So, yeah, I would hate uh, that. Good, good choice not doing that. The other thing you could do for money is, you know, grab a couple of your, your bestest buds and, and go win a magic tournament. You have any interest in doing that? Not really. Um. Okay, never mind. No, we're you and I are teaming up with Josh Joe. We're going to SCG Gone Pittsburgh. I do not necessarily recommend that people do this, but I feel like shit, man. I need to do something for myself. And you do. I agree with you. This is kind of the first step to doing it. And Joe is, you know, kind of in a similar spot where he's just like, dude, I need to get out of the house. I need to do something. He he is like not played magic in like years at this point, you know, like kind of keeps up. We'll listen to the occasional podcast or like look at some cards, you know, still on, on Twitter occasionally, but like has definitely not played magic online, tried to play arena and just like got bogged down by the tutorial that you could not skip or whatever. So he's just like, all right, I'm off. <laughs> Sparky this. doomed his, his attempt to play arena. I mean, it was, it was just like play 50 matches before you can like actually draft or whatever. And he's like, why can't I skip this? This is such I th- garbage. I think you can skip it. It's not obvious how to skip it, but I'm pretty sure you can skip it. Cause I have a second account and I remember skipping it. Okay. I couldn't figure it out, but yeah, uh, he and I were were both just like we need to do something. Is a magic tournament like the the optimal thing? Uh, certainly not, you know. But we're gonna we're gonna do it. See how it goes. See how it feels. Hopefully that there are some friends there. It is nice that uh, it, it's a team tournament, which I think was the draw for both he and I. And then we recruited you because you're very susceptible to our charms. Peer pressure. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. It, I, that aspect of it is going to be good. The fact that I get to sit by friends every round is going to be awesome. Regardless. I wouldn't do it otherwise. There's no chance I would be going if yeah. it wasn't a team tournament. So Yeah, so we, we've talked about like, oh, you know, what are we going to do on Sunday if we don't make day two or whatever? And it's like, yeah, probably just go home because I don't know. Yeah, I might play a little Flesh and Blood, but uh, you you guys can go home. Well, okay. we're, we're driving separately, so it, is, it's fine. True. It all works out. That is and true. Then, yeah, and it, like we're, we're all comfortable with the idea of like if anyone wants to bail at any time, that's cool. We'll all just drop. Yeah, that is a, that is a big tenant of our team strategy is that if we ever have like a moment of disinterest or just like, well, let's do something else that everyone's on board with just abandoning ship immediately. Now, that being said, I do believe we're favorites to win the tournament. So I'm, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that. I, I love making bold claims that are in no way grounded in reality. So we're favorites to win the tournament. I have a feeling we're going to be wrapped in it for the long haul. And then you'll have you'll have a few more bucks to put in your pocket and you can, you know, maybe skip a few days of streaming here or there. It's oh, yeah, that was the other thing, too, is like, I'm, I'm not going to be streaming that Saturday, obviously. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's spoken for. I have a reasonable excuse this time, though. No, this is a good excuse. That's good. I do still like the idea of like winning the trophy or, or whatever place it takes to get handed a piece of hardware and then just immediately throwing it in the garbage. <laughs> I, I do fantasize fan, about huh? that occasionally because the last time I got to do that was like U.S. Nationals. So it's been, well, it's been a minute. I, I think the odds of there actually being a physical trophy are probably slim. I could be wrong on that. I don't, I don't know what the trophy policy is these days. I would also encourage you to find something else to do with that trophy rather than just throwing it in the garbage. Well, like you don't have to keep it, but like somebody probably would appreciate that. Well, that's the thing is like, I did that with the nationals trophy because it was just like spur of the moment. Like I, I know that I don't keep any of my stuff. Right. So the thing basically had like no value in my mind. And I wasn't like mad, mad that I got second, but like, I really wanted to win. So I was kind of mm-hmm. like disappointed. And that was like a representation of my failure. Right, so, so it had no nothing to offer you. Basically. Yeah, so I just immediately threw in the trash. Uh, some someone like fished it out and they kept it, but <laughs> you know, good for them. Uh, and then the the thing that I should have done was like hold on to it, play the the World Magic Cup. Like if we win that, it's like okay, well I have the plaque and the trophy. I can auction that off or something. Like that would have yep. been cool. Uh, yep. Instead, I blew it when we were playing for top eight. So like that never came to fruition anyway. But it could have. So for the, next time for this, it's it's way lighter, right? It's like 
what, why is someone going to want like one, one third of this trophy? Like, I agree that, you know, there's, there's something out there for everyone. Right. And like someone will probably want it, but I don't know. I'll still probably just throw it in the garbage. Will there be three trophies or is it one shared trophy? I would assume that there's going to be three trophies, man, but I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. Interesting. Well, we'll report back next week after we have our either one, three, or zero trophies, all options. I don't think we'll get two trophies. That's the one I don't think is an option. But I'd say well, one, zero, and three are all on the table. No, we're we're recording another episode before then because it's the, the 29th. Oh, we're two weeks away. Yeah, I have, I have no idea. Honestly, I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time of the month it is. I have I have been working a lot and I'm very confused and very tired. So Yeah, I feel you. I This has made me like actually keep track of the time. Because it was like, okay, yeah, like I know when the set is coming out. I now know what like unplayable cards are in the set because it's team sealed. Unfortunately, I wish it was team constructed. Good God. I'd be so much happier. But, uh, you know, I I know that like the set gets released digitally on the 28th and is released live on the 29th and then the tournaments on the 30th. And I I know way too much stuff because this is a lot of info. Yeah, a lot of good info. And I'm glad you're keeping track of it because I am not. Yeah, so I'll be able to build all of our decks probably. So we got that going for us too. Perfect. This is ex- my my dream tournament. I know. Do I have to? Do I have to actually play the games, or do you guys think you could just like I- you know two <laughs> zero every round? Uh I've I've tried to do that in some tournaments before. It has not been very fun. I would appreciate it if you would get a couple. You know. Okay. Uh, one or two. I could win one or two. Like I'm not even confident in my own abilities, man. And I think I think Cho would say the same thing. Like he's he's gonna go through a bunch of nonsense to trick his opponents to get the moral <laughs> victory and then still lose. Right. 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 So then like you and I have to actually get the match points. I think. Oh, all right. I, I might've changed my assessment of us as tournament favorites after having this conversation. We'll, we'll build you a nice Grixis deck, buddy. It'll be fine. You just kill stuff, draw cards. That's my MO. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting stuff going on in, in the world of Jerry and in the world of Brian, I think. As always, game. Good luck.